The book of Romans, chapter 3, I'll begin reading in verse 31, I'm sorry, 21. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. And I'll read through verse 26, and I'm going to stop somewhere towards the end of this text. Around halfway through verse 25, as we're moving through this, there is a richness and beauty to the text that warrants moving through it slowly that we might understand it, or at least methodically, that we might understand it well. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, and I'll read to the end of that section, which is verse 26. But now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we come to you this morning, and we ask that you might, by your spirit, give us understanding where there may have not been understanding otherwise. That you would give us not only an understanding, but a a love that springs forth by your spirit in our hearts in response to what we hear of you, our Redeemer and Lord. That our hearts might be transformed, that our hands might be transformed, that our minds, that every part of us would be conformed more and more after the pattern of righteousness that we find not only revealed in your word, but chiefly in the Messiah who came and took upon himself flesh and blood and died, that we might be redeemed, that we might meet you here, that you might make of us that which you wish, all for your glory and for the good of your people, we ask these things. Amen. Here's another reason why I think it helps when preaching through a book like Romans where there is a lot of Paul doing his Pauline run-on sentence thing is that by the time I'm done with the sentence, whatever readily accessed memory, RAM, kids, you may or may not know what I'm talking about. I grew up in the days when RAM was very important with computers. What he has said at the beginning of the text has already fallen off the edge of what my RAM can hold by the time I get to the end. And so, does anyone get that? (laughs) Okay, good. Shorter texts are very helpful to me because I can sort of, it's more bite-size. Uh, Romans 3, 21 through 26 is like the 60-ounce the porterhouse that you get at the restaurant when they dare you to eat it all. And your only experience of it, if you try to eat it all, was, I just remember lots and lots of food. So I want us, as we move through the book of Romans, to be able to see the parts of Paul's epistle, the gospel, 
that he was going to take to the nation of Spain, though he never got to go because he died in a Roman prison. And he said to his young acolyte Timothy, his disciple, though I am bound, the word of God is not bound. This word continues to transform lives because it has the spirit at work through it. Now, speaking for myself, the series from the book of Revelation has been my favorite. Prior to that, it was the book of Genesis. I don't think any of us say that the series from Leviticus is our favorite. There are some books you just get through, and though they are the inspired word of God, they are heavy. Romans is one of those books that is weighty, but it is also refreshing. Now, the reason I think Revelation has been my favorite was because I did not understand in many ways, even leaving seminary and going into pastoral ministry, what kinds of plays we were trying to run and what sort of objective primarily we had in the work of the kingdom. Our eschatology is our objective. Romans, Romans is our playbook. And if we are to get to the promised end result that the knowledge of God will cover the earth as the water covers the seas, this is how the water does that. This is the, the spigot that gets turned on at the resurrection of Christ. It is the gospel that now, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. A Shriner in his commentary seeks to have us understand that that Apart, I'm sorry, but now relates to the time of the revelation of Christ in the flesh. Not just the promise in the Old Testament, but the fulfillment of that promise in the Gospels up to this point. And the way that we get to the objective that is a world filled with Christ followers is through the proclamation of this Gospel. And there is no other way. It is not the good news of democracy or capitalism, of Western philosophy. All of those things are good. It is the good news of Christ apart from, but borne witness by, all that we see in the Old Testament. And so this morning, I want to focus our vision a bit tighter, a bit more narrow upon this righteousness that comes through faith as an instrumental cause whereby we are made righteous. And then I want to talk about the free nature of the gift. And then I want to set aside for next week the doctrine and the beauty of the propitiation of Christ's redeeming blood and how that is made possible even for those who lived before the coming of Christ. We see that at the end of this text. And some of you may say, though you may know, how is it possible that Abraham was saved by the gospel ever before Christ took upon himself flesh and blood? So, this morning, two points that I want to make. First, a righteousness through faith. A righteousness through faith. And then second, the free nature of the gift. Now... One of the dangers when you go through the book of Revelation is the foreign nature of the language that we find. That's one danger. 
in terms of biblical interpretation. We don't know what to do with the words. The other danger with books like Romans is that the language is so familiar that it goes in one ear and comes out the other because we hear it all the time, possibly. And so my prayer this week has been that you might hear, that you might hear with new ears. Let's look at this first point, a righteousness through faith. Now, I want to talk theology. I want to talk shop a little bit. And I understand that theology doesn't make a great sermon, but you can't have a sermon without theology. That is a theology-only sermon. Now, if you want to know what the Reformed confessional church believes concerning justification, then go to chapter 11 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. But my job is not to preach the Westminster Confession of Faith, it's to preach the word. But I will quote from chapter 11, paragraph 2, Faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification. Now I'm going to talk about what that means. To start, it is necessary that we believe that men are by nature objects of wrath. We are totally depraved. That's the T of TULIP, if you're familiar with that acronym. We are by nature objects of wrath. We are unjust. We are guilty before God. And so if we are not justified by Christ's righteousness, we are all of us, the whole lot of us, in a state of rebellion and sin and misery. Paul made this clear in chapter 1 and 2. Jew or Gentile, we are all in a state of sin. And because we are sinful, something has to change. There must be a change of our status before God in order for us to be declared innocent of every fault. Sproul, in his little article on justification as the instrument, says we by nature are not justified. Justified just means declared righteous. So when I say justified, here declared righteous before God as judge. We, by nature, are not justified. We are unjust. And our status before God is that we deserve his unmitigated wrath. We need a change of our status from a state of damnation to a state of justification. The question is, what moves us from one status that is guilty to innocent? What moves us? Now, the Gentile says, I don't want to play in that sandbox at all. I don't like that system. What I want to do is I want to establish another system whereby I can be declared righteous by not playing according to God's rules. But you don't get to do that. Paul makes that very clear in Romans chapter 1. In chapter 2, he talks about the Jewish error, which is I seek to endeavor by my own merits to be justified through the system revealed in the word of God. Both get it wrong. And so both are condemned. And in the law, you and I, before God, do not have a case. Whatever we argue, it cannot compare with the case that God has against us that we are guilty, that we are condemned in our trespasses and sins. And so the only way that we can be set free is that something is offered to us from God in the place of our wretched defense, the case that we cannot argue. 
Now let me continue to develop a bit more. I want to start by saying something perhaps a bit absurd, maybe. You do not have to believe in justification by faith in order to be justified by faith. Or to state it differently, just because you understand the doctrine of justification by faith does not mean that you rely upon Christ for salvation. There are many solid theologians who have not trusted Christ for salvation. And this is probably more common than we often like to think. And that is because we think that our justification is tied to not faith as an instrument, but our theology as a merit before God. And so we must think of faith not as a merit or as a work, but the antithesis of merit and work. Merit by works, that is meriting Christ's favor or the favor of God by what we do, has been shown by Paul to be completely ineffective. And so Sproul continues in his article, we can receive Christ's merit only by faith, and there is no merit to that. The only one who can save us is Christ, and the only way we can get access to him is through faith. We do not rest on anything else in our lives except Christ and his righteousness for our salvation. Giving examples is difficult when it comes to theological things. I want to try and give you some measure of an example. Parents, in this season in which gifts are given and received, there is often the desire of a child who has no ability to go to a store and purchase something either for a sibling or a parent. And so they come to you and they say, will you help me? And the parent says, yes. Here's some money. Go and purchase a gift. That child takes that money with which they purchase a gift, and then they get to give it. What merit did that child have? It was given to them. Such is our righteousness. Anything that we have to argue before God as judge is not something that comes from our bank account. It does not come from our lives of moral failure or success. It is given to us by Christ. The price is paid and we present it to God and we say, he paid it. I didn't do this. And you need not only understand how that transaction works, but you need to be part of that transaction. But it is not faith alone that saves. Because there is a lot of faith in a lot of religions. And there is a lot of faith that rests upon objects that cannot bring salvation. When I was of some sort of missionary in Southwest Asia, every student that I met that was at the university, I would ask them, what do you believe in? And they would say, I believe in myself. And that's not just an, a communist sort of secular thing. In the eastern part of this globe, it is very much part of our Western educational system today. What do you believe in? I believe that man is the measure of all things. 
And I would ask them then, well, how did that calculus test go this morning? I failed. And I would say, well, some God you are. (laughs) Congratulations. Your entire system is destroyed. If you are the object of your hope for the future, some future you're going to have. The grounds of our faith is essential to get it right. And so here, as Paul is writing to the Romans, he says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. And so the object of our faith for salvation is not law, though it is witnessed by the law and prophets, and it is not to abandon God's revelation altogether as the Gentiles do and to seek to hide or suppress and exchange it, the grounds of our faith must be whom? Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Why is it that Christ must be our grounds? Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There are no other grounds. And yet, what do we do? It's the, are you my mother of saviors? Are you my mother? Are you, are you my mother? No, I'm a tractor. <laughs> and this is what you see all around you, all the time. It is a, a populace, a people who are, metaphorically speaking, digging ditches, right, that cannot hold water. And they get a little bit of water in the bottom and it quickly is used up. And we go from idol to idol to idol and we seek to receive from those things a blessing, a temporary help and salve to the guilt and the misery of our souls. And yet we all live our lives, whether we say it or not, Hearing that condemnation pronounced against our consciences, guilty, guilty, guilty. But there is another declaration that can proceed from the throne of God besides guilty. And what is that? Innocent. Innocent. How is that vindication made possible? That we do not plead by faith upon any other grounds than the grounds of Christ's own meritorious work. His work, his saving work, is what we place our faith in. And you don't get to brag because you say, I believe. For what does Paul then say in the book of Ephesians? Even this is given to you as a gift. And so, I've endeavored to explain that faith is the instrument of justification. Faith, as I said already, is not enough. It must be upon a proper object. That object, the grounds for our saving or our being declared innocent or righteous before God is the work of Christ given to us. And not only that, but it is to all and on all. In the same way, or at least the idea is related to this, that all men are universally guilty, or as we say in colloquial terms, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, 
You and I have no other plea, no other case, nothing to argue before God as judge except Christ. Now, legally speaking, it is completely and wholly possible, well, reasonable, not possible, reasonable to be counted righteous before God based upon our works if we had never sinned. The problem is what? The argument is lost ever before we even know how to go to the bathroom ourselves. <laughs> our children are the great example of this, right? Our children are conceived as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve in sin. And as beautiful and as wonderful as your little children are, they are sinners from conception, not just birth. They don't become sinners somewhere between birth and the terrible twos. And you see this even at very young ages, don't you? There is a kind of innocence for a time where children don't even understand their own wills. They just know I'm hungry, I cry. I'm dirty, I cry. But at some point it's, I want that thing, you're not giving it to me, I cry. That crying, that complaint is from a heart of sin. And there's no way to escape that. And so Paul says, look, we know this to be true. We are all sinners. I've made this point. It is inescapable. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so the only thing that can justify is something that comes to us from outside of ourselves. And that argument is clear. That if it were left to us, we would look to one another and say, can you help me? Can you help me get out of this bind? And we must say to one another, no, I have no ability. I cannot help you argue your case before the throne. And this is the limitation of theological liberalism. There is a lot that the church has to offer the world. The churches have diaconal ministries, and the diaconal ministry of the church is to help and recognize that the body, not just the soul, is made by God. It is good, and it needs to be cared for. But when you abandon Christ alone as the way of salvation, what do you actually have to offer the world? You can feed the body, but for what purpose? And this is what often happens. The theological liberalism as its own religion hollows Christianity out from the inside and it leaves no hope whatsoever. And not just theological liberalism, but Judaism, Islamism, Mormonism that denies Christ the position of lordship because he is not equal to the Father or Jehovah's Witness right there with him or any of these religions that destroys and dismantles Christ's sufficient work on behalf of those who cannot save themselves. And in the same way that sin and judgment are indiscriminate, so too is the lavish mercy of God. You need only believe and by faith trust in the merits of Christ. And so you may say, Pastor, 
I'm afraid to witness to my neighbors. I don't know what to say. You do know what to say. It is so absurdly simple. The problem isn't that you don't know what to say. The problem is that you think that what you will say will not stand up to the sophistication of their rebellion. And let me tell you this. (laughs) The level of the sophistication of their rebellion is tied directly to the height of their being aware of their own guilt before God. What do you need only do? Start shooting holes in the wings of that plane that cannot fly. Proclaim Christ's lordship. And so the notion that there is no distinction. Evidence is two anti-gospel sentiments that often arise in the hearts of men. That is, the gospel says there are no distinction. And we say, of course there is a distinction. At least, like the Pharisees say, I am not like that man, that tax collector and sinner. What do we call that? Pride of self. All of these, or these two efforts, are really endeavoring to help, well, to ask God to grade on a curve. In the pride of self, we want to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And that by being good and godly, then the Lord will bestow on us some sort of respect, honor, and well done that is in keeping with our merit. Or we think God will judge us like our neighbors, and if we can fool our neighbors, surely we can fool God. Because we want to continue to sin, but still be respectable. But there is no place for that. That is not justifying faith. Or we want self-pity. Lord, look at how bad my life is. Just cut me some slack. We want God to take pity on us because we've had it so hard, which is ironic that in this age of incredible wealth, we have so many precious philosophical religious snowflakes. How dare God not show me pity based upon this particular aspect of my, name it, characteristics. And if God isn't, then he's evil because he owes me. Like my parents owe me some kind of allowance. All of these are endeavoring to sort of force God's hand at doing something that is in the end unjust. But God cannot be unjust. But what God has done is he has revealed to us clearly in his word the true way of salvation. And that is... Through faith, verse 22, in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. And that leads me then to my second point, the free nature of the gift. I'll continue reading in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, When I speak of the free nature of the gift, I want us to think of the freeness of that gift in terms of its costly nature and its being purchased, but the free nature of it in its being distributed. And so as it relates to the gift, we see a costly price. Mark 10, 45, Christ himself speaking he says for even the son of man did not come to be served 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What does he mean by ransom? What is a ransom? Someone comes to your house maybe, and they, this is a terrible maybe illustration, they take your children, they take them to a house, and they say, we want you to pay us a certain sum of money, and then we will give your children back to you. They're asking for what? A ransom. Theologically speaking, in the history of the church, there was something actually called a ransom theory. <clears throat> the ransom theory was this theological notion that Christ's death was a ransom paid to Satan. And this in order to release us from Satan's grasp and power. Now, this position is wholly and utterly unbiblical. As no mention of our owing Satan anything in Scripture is ever developed. Nor is Satan the judge of men, but he is an unjust accuser. The one who we have to fear is whom? The just judge. Who is? The one who made us. The one who gave us life. The one whom we sinned against. And though there is an enemy, and though there is some element of bondage to the devil due to God's own wrath, the payment that we owe is not to Satan, nor is it to another man. Lest you be deceived by the Me Too movement, right? Your guilt is to be paid to men. A guilt that you can actually never pay enough for. The payment that we owe is to a God who in his grace reveals to those who are debtors the way in which that payment can actually be made is paid by God himself. This is the grace of the covenant of grace. And so when you look at the history of the world, here's a little more theology, we find two major covenantal categories. The covenant of works that was made with Adam, do this and you shall live, do this and you shall die. Adam sinned and brought death into the world. God made another covenant with another Adam. Not another man, but the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, whom Paul will later mention in the book of Romans. If you are in Adam, you are a covenant breaker because you have disobeyed that covenant. If you are in Christ, Christ has kept the covenant for you. The covenant of grace is really a, a covenant of works kept by God himself. And so Christ came to earth and he died and with his blood paid the ransom. And that we who are enemies of God under his wrath, rightly so because of our sins... Have someone who stands in our place, who freely came, happily died. Why? Because the nature of the love of the Son, because of the nature of the love of His Son for His Father and for His people. It pleased Christ to do the will of His Heavenly Father, and it pleased Christ to redeem for Himself a special people, His bride and His body. Christ paid the price. He, prayed, he paid the price 
that you and I could not pay. And in fact, the writer of Hebrews speaks of this in Hebrews chapter 9. Beginning in verse 11, this is what we read, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come. But the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, here it is, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Christ, the perfect sacrifice, kept holy by the Holy Spirit, died, and in his death, death died. And in his resurrection, brought to new life those who by faith lay hold of the work of Christ. Christ paid the price. And that is why in Isaiah 55, the prophet, speaking on behalf of the Lord, begins with a word where he wants to get everyone's attention. And he says, ho, right? Hey, listen. Everyone who thirsts come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, the Lord says, and eat what is good. And let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear, come to me, hear, and your soul shall live. You know why the world doesn't love the gospel? Because they're so busy spending money they've earned for the things that their sinful souls long for. And you're going, hey, stop. Don't stop me from doing what I want to do. Is that not the clarion call of the gospel? Stop what you're doing. And then the call is, come and buy without money. The language that might be used in the law court is come and hold fast to a defense that has nothing to do with what you have done. Argue another case. Plead Christ on your defense or in your defense. Justification is free because it is not wrought or purchased by our hands or anything available to us on earth. It must be given. And this is the beauty of the free offer of the gospel. It is for any and all who believe. And I'll tell you what, this is what preaches. And when I say this is what preaches, I don't mean this is what gets people kind of moving on Sunday, right? Oh, he's preaching for moments. This is what changes the nations. Not just because it is true, but because the Spirit has been sent out into the world so that where this gospel is preached, 
the Spirit moves and opens the hearts and the eyes of those who are blind and lost in sin. Dear saints, this is what our church is built on. And there are other things to talk about in the Bible. But none of those things matter if we are not first right with God. That we must be first and foremost. We must see ourselves as a community of those who have freely received the grace of God through Christ Jesus. It is the beginning and the middle and the end of all that we are and all that we have. And in a moment, at the table, we will confess together that that is only hope. Now, there's more here in my outline, but I think I need to wait till next week. I want you... Is this strange to give you a little bit of homework, maybe, <laughs> as a way of ending a sermon? I said it was a little bit theological, so maybe it feels like a class. As we're getting ready to move to verse 25, I want you to see that there are no hard stops in this section. Paul's writing a run-on sentence. The best sentences are run-on sentences, honestly, in all of literature. But when in verse 25, Paul speaks of God's setting forth, next week I want us to look at the timeless nature, the eternal nature of the plan of salvation and how that eternal plan of salvation breaks into this world, this universe governed by time and space. But dear saints, as you go to your homes this morning, I want us to remember that before the throne of God we have but one plea. And that is the blood of righteousness alone. Amen? All right, we're going to do something a little bit differently. We have an extra hymn or psalm. We have an extra song. I want us to stand before we take the Lord's Supper. And I want us to sing hymn, a 278 in light of the glories of Romans chapter 3. Let's stand and sing 278.